0: Well, good morning, everybody. That's not too bad. Let's try it again. Good morning. That's even better. Well, thank you, Vina, for reading God's Word for us this morning. I want to welcome you to church this morning, both here presently and online. Um, also, by the way, if you get a chance, it's Vena's birthday, so make sure you wish her a happy birthday. And uh, thank you, Vena, for that. And great to have... Okay, there you go. Look. That's how you know you're in a Baptist church, when everybody takes the five seconds to decide, should we or shouldn't we clap? <laughs> um, but it is good to be together. I'm gra- grateful for the friends and visitors. As Paul mentioned, it's good to have Chad with us from the Send Network, and of course, uh, to have Thomas and Christina here, and they're just down from Churro, seeking the Lord's face and will for them as well. But it is good to be together. So, you've got your Bibles open to John chapter 15. For those of you that are visiting, both here and online, I've been doing a series through the Gospel of John titled Conversations with Christ. Conversations with Christ. And I've done that very deliberately because John's Gospel, more than Matthew, Mark, or Luke, is a collection of conversations that Jesus has with either individuals or people, groups, or crowds. Now, today, my title, as you've seen, if you have a bulletin, if you watch the social media, is really a question. And that's not it. Are you at home with Jesus? Are you at home with Jesus? I didn't say, and I don't mean that question in the sense of, are you going home, as in most people think I'm going home to heaven. I mean, right now, August 29th of 2021, in your life, whatever status or circumstance you find yourself in, would you say resoundingly, courageously, enthusiastically, I'm at home with Jesus? Or maybe you can identify with the words of this old hymn of the faith. Abide with me, fast falls the even tide. The darkness deepens, Lord. Oh, with me abide And when other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, O Lord, abide with me. And swift to its close ebbs out life's little day and earth's joys grow dim. And its glories, they all seem to pass away. And change and decay and all around I see, O thou who changest not, abide with me. And I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. And ills have no weight and tears no bitterness. Oh, Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abides with me. And hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. And shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. And heaven's morning breaks. And earth's vain shadows flee in life and death. O Lord. Abide with me. Amen? (laughs) Now, how did you react when you heard those words? Honestly. Some of you said amen. Some of you went, oh, yes. Some of you identify with the writer, and this might even this morning have been your plea. God, where are you? But what if I said, I know how you feel. I think we've all been there, haven't we? Crying out to God, don't leave me. Where are you? Lord, I need you. But again, what if this old hymn while expressing our longings, even our desires, and our desperation. Now, don't stone me. What if this hymn actually gets it wrong? What if this hymn gets it wrong? What if the Bible, based on John chapter 15, and not only here, but everywhere in the New Testament, teaches us that we never have to fear a distant God or a Christ who won't abide with us? You never have to plead with Jesus to abide with you. Could it be that we, you and I, us, we can be so easily led astray by our emotions? by the world's pressure and the peer group of our culture and especially the lies and the deception of Satan that even when we recognize that things are wrong, we tend to cry out, God, help me, where are you? When God's word says to us to abide with him and not the other way around, God, abide with me. Think about it. I submit to us all here today that John chapter 15, really beginning in verse 1, 1 to 11, especially as we focus today on 6 to 11, is Jesus unpacking what he said back in John chapter 14, verse 6. When Jesus said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And so he's explaining what that means in John chapter 15. He starts by using this parable. What 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 he's explaining is the idea of that he is the vine and God is the father, is the vine dresser, and we are the branches. And he's trying to let his disciples know what it means to be at home with him in their present circumstances, where they are, whatever's happening, no matter what the outcome. Jesus said, I am the vine. Now, before you quickly move off from that, think through the ramifications of it. He is saying, I am the one that accomplishes all that is needed for your salvation. You don't have to work at it. You don't have to keep it. You don't have to earn it. You have to enjoy it. Eternal life is always and only found in Jesus Christ. But then, in verses 2 to 5, he tells us that God is the vine dresser. He oversees and tends to our spiritual growth. And by the way, to our outcome, he does this by pruning us. By the way, I think that's what Paul was talking about, as Curtis mentioned this last week in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. All things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things, not just the things you like, not some of the things, not most of the things, all the things happening in your life now. For a few seconds, just take stock of what's going on in your life and what side of the page you would put them on with, I like it, I don't like it. And are you courageous enough to believe that Jesus says, all those things, I'm working out for your good. We come to the part in verses 6 to 11 of John 15 where Jesus explains who we are. We are the branches. And we are to function as branches. Now, watch this now. In verse 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, and 11, six times in five verses, he's going to say, abide in me. Now, depending on what translation, it says abide. Some of you might have a translation that says remain. It means settled. And this is where I got my title. It actually means to be at home, to be settled, at rest, remain in me. The Greek word is meno. It means settled, remain, at home, And actually, in our passage, Jesus unpacks three major areas of the Christian life by which we grow and mature. If you really capture this and you walk out of here, you will realize this is your formula for love-fueled obedience. Notice I said love-fueled obedience, not fear-fueled obedience. It's love-fueled obedience, prayer, and joy believe it or not, those are the big fruit that God tends to us and wants us. All the other fruit of the Spirit that you and I read about in Galatians 5 and other places are a result of you and I understanding what it means to abide in God, which drives our obedience, our prayer life, and our joy. And I honestly believe That John the Apostle chooses to write this gospel the way he does with his seven signs, those I am statements of God, and sorry, the seven I am statements and those seven signs because of what Jesus teaches, these 11, are you ready now? 11 scared, weak, vulnerable, mixed up followers of Christ. John MacArthur actually got it right when he titled his book on the disciples, 12 Ordinary Men. In this case, it's 11 ordinary, scared, confused men. Now, be honest. Almost two years into COVID, threatenings of fourth waves, the tension of lockdowns, masks, no masks vaccine, nomad vaccine, vaccine passports, what to do, when to do it, where to do it. Can we not all relate with being ordinary, scared, weak, vulnerable, mixed up men and women who need an amazing God? You see, these 11 men only hours before. Never forget this. When you read this passage, they are about 12 hours from all 11 of them denying Jesus. And when Jesus says these words, he's about 18 hours away from Calvary. This is the backdrop to these words. And he wants them to know that he is an extraordinary, amazing, sovereign, magnificent God, Savior, and Lord. And I believe that John chapter 13 to 17 is why John says what he does in John chapter 20. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in these books, this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But more than that, here's the difference between relationship and religion. This John, I believe, John 13 to 17 in particular, so transformed the life of John the, the apostle that the last words of this gospel in John chapter 21, he says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his Jesus testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did. Now watch the grand sense of worship that John the Apostle has, which if they were written, that, written one by one, I suppose not even the world itself could contain the books that would be written. This was the wonder and the majesty and the worship that John had of God. Now let me ask you this past week, how often were you awestruck at the love of God? I didn't ask you, did you read your Bible all seven days in your chronological Bible reading plan? I didn't ask you, did you pray morning, noon, and night? I didn't ask you if you went to your small group and served 10 hours and witnessed to 18 people and all of these things. I didn't ask you if you completed your checklist. What I asked you is, did you, are you at home with Jesus? Whatever your life looks like. Very quickly this morning, let me walk you through this. Number one, abiding in Christ is the difference between religion versus relationship. Abiding in Christ, look at verse 6. It's probably the most negative part of the first 11 verses. If anyone does not abide in me, he or she is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Believe it or not, Jesus is going to show us that abiding in him actually delivers us from judgment. But in this case, he does it by giving us the negative in the form of giving us the positive. He shows us how we can be assured of rest. We can be sure of having the ear of God, the favor of God, the love of God, when you honestly, truly believe you never have to fear the wrath of God. You never have to fear His judgment. Jesus taught of this in Matthew chapter 13 when He spoke to His disciples the parable of the wheat and the tares. And He says to His disciples, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels, and just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age." The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom and all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous will shine like the sun of the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Over and over again, Jesus will do this in the New Testament. In the Sermon on the Mount... Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, if you are feeling a bit uncomfortable and you're like, okay, so Steve, you didn't preach in a month and obviously it shows. It's meant to make you uncomfortable. It's meant to make you uneasy. It's meant to make you really ask yourself, am I at home with Jesus? Because Jesus speaks here of God's judgment and he's talking to his 11 disciples. And by the way, they've just watched Judas leave. He has just told them in chapter 14 that Judas would betray him. He's told them that they're going to be weak. He's told them that that he's going to leave. And then he says, but let not your hearts be troubled. And now he unpacks all of this. So he's not talking about sinners generally, but on professing people who do not possess saving life and bear good fruit. And if you think of Judas Iscariot, you're supposed to. Judas here is the classic example of a false professor who was removed and then condemned by God. Later in chapter 17, verse 12, when Jesus prays, he calls Judas the son of destruction. But you've got to do two things with verse 6 before you're ever going to get the joy that he's talking about in verse 11. You've got to personally apply verse 6 to you, and you've got to understand this when we see it happen all around us. You and I think it might have been so obvious for Judas. You probably think, how could the guys not understand this? Because we're getting the the advantage of reading the Bible. So obviously we see that Judas was like this. But listen, in their life, Judas was a liked guy. It was not obvious that Judas was a false professor, He was liked and listened to and trusted, and all of his ordinary friends, they all had times of intimate talks, and Judas never, don't forget this, was in the boat when Peter walked on water. He was there for the feeding of the 5,000. When the man born blind received his sight, he partook of the water that was turned into wine. He was there when the woman at the well was given hope. He saw Lazarus come out from the grave. Judas could have given you a testimony. He could give Jesus praise. He would have had all the things that you and I are tempted to cling to. But here Jesus is making it abundantly clear. Salvation isn't a moment in time. Salvation is not a sinner's prayer or a conversion story or a card filled out. It's not an aisle walked. It's a life. We need to keep this in mind as we consider this warning in verse 6. R.C. Sproul says, We tend to think that no one can be in the vine unless he or she is truly converted. However, in verse 6 of chapter 15, it's a reference to being in the visible church. A person can have a relationship with Christ that is merely external. He goes on to say, I believe this was the kind of relationship Jesus had in mind in his parable of the sower. Jesus said that the seed represented those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, but they don't have a root who believe for a while, and yet in a time of temptation, fall away. And he goes on to drive this point home. He says, I received a letter from a person who said, asked me, I prayed the sinner's prayer. Does that, that mean I can never be lost? He said, I wrote them back and answered it like this. No, that doesn't mean you can never be lost, because nobody is saved by saying a sinner's prayer. If you say the sinner's prayer in faith, in true faith, then Christ not only will redeem you, but he will never let you go. But no one is saved by a profession of faith. Likewise, no one is saved by joining a church. No one is saved by being a member of a church. No one is saved by giving to a church. No one is saved by joining a Christian church. Does a person ought to in this earthly life, all these things? Absolutely. It's a tremendous advantage to be where the Word of God is preached, where people of God are gathered and you can be loved and prayed for. But you see, it's not earning. It's not proving. It's not even keeping. It's always and only about abiding, remaining, resting, and responding. So now watch what he does. He takes you from that awkward uncomfortableness, and he moves in verse 7 to abiding in Christ is the means to relational prayer. Watch this now. Now, I don't know about you. I'm about to be 50. I've grown up in church. I went to Sunday school my entire life. I went to a Christian school. I went to youth group and college and career group. I went to anything and everything you can think of. I memorized large portions of Scripture. I was at church most of my life whenever the lights were on. And so often I would hear sermon after sermon like so many of you young people who've had the joy and the blessing of being born into Christian families and you've been brought to church your entire lives and you know so much of your Bible and you never stop to go, what does this actually mean? Because what does it mean to abide in Christ? Because if abiding in Christ keeps us from judgment... And if abiding in Christ fuels our prayer life, empowers our love, and brings us joy, I mean, who wouldn't want to abide in Christ? Well, as I said at the beginning, this word abiding is the Greek word menu, and it means to dwell or remain. And J.C. Ryle, the Anglican minister, said this, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with Jesus. To be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion, as our best friend. To have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and our minds. It's to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. This is why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus said that it was the truth that had made these men clean. Now, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus tells them they've got to remain, abide, be settled, be at home with the truth of the word of God. Look at what he says. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit. So, prove to be my disciples. Do you see it? We're told to abide... We're told to remain in Jesus, and when we do this by remaining in the Word of God, and when you remain in the Word of God, you'll be informed and empowered You're in your prayer life. Your prayer life will bring glory to God. It will cause you to bear much fruit, and it will give you the assurance you need that you are God's children. So you won't walk around all the time. I know for many of you here, you might say, Steve, I don't doubt my salvation. Okay. But I know for a fact that many of you doubt God's love for you. And many of you doubt God's love for the people you care about. And you wonder where God is. And we're right back to the beginning. Oh, Lord, if you just abide with me, oh, God, where are you? Let me remind us of how Jesus is our example of this. Remember back in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus is led out into the wilderness, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and it was at the end of that spiritual um, separation where he communed with God in such beautiful ways. It was at the end of that wonderful thing, it's when Satan attacks. You'll notice Satan didn't attack him on the front end, he attacked him on the back end. And this is why we need to remain and abide, because you guys can have these emotional moments in your Bible reading or at church or at camp or at a retreat or reading a book, and all of a sudden you think, I'm going to do something for the Lord. And you, you give yourself and you serve and you seek to do something, and it all seems to go well. And then you get to the end of it, and it all just falls apart. And you're like, what the heck happened? Because that's Satan's M.O., He's gonna get you when you think you should be at your strongest. He's gonna go, <laughs> now I got you. So when Jesus is in the wilderness, remember what he does when Satan tempts him three times and attacks him? He uses the Word of God. He basically says to Satan, the Word of God is enough, the Word of God is coherent, and the Word of God is authoritative. So Jesus loved God's word with his heart. It's all I need. It satisfies me. And Jesus loved God's word with his mind. He understood it. He didn't just read it. He brought it in and he wrestled with it and he understood it. And then he loved God's word with his will. It changed him so that he obeyed it. Jesus will twice put a qualifier in this passage of abiding in him. Look at it. He tells us if his words abide in us in verse 7, and then look at verse 10, and if we keep his commands. You see, we will constantly doubt God's love. Every one of you is going to doubt God's love. I'm not knocking the hymn, abide with me, because I can't identify with the words. I can. I've sung them and cried them and prayed them and yelled them and whined them and mourned them many days of my life. I've doubted God's presence, but most of all, I've doubted God's approval. See, often I think God loves me, but I don't know if He likes me. I start to look at my life and I'm really honest about my inconsistencies and my hypocrisies and how weak I am and fickle I can be, how easily I'm distracted or afraid. And Jesus says, Stephen, if you'll abide with me and my word abides in you, whatever you ask in prayer, I will give it to you. See, God tells us to live, and sometimes the way he tells us to live will seem hard, and sometimes it's even harsh from our perspective. We might even say it's not reasonable. Lord, I don't want to suffer like this. I don't want to be not liked. I don't want to have this tension in my marriage or with my kids or in my, my family, with my parents. I, don't, I want everybody, we, we think like Rodney King. Why can't we all just get along? Yet we live the life knowing that so often that doesn't happen. But I want you to remember this. This is why we have to be in the Word of God, so that God's ways truly to become our ways. Because when you read God's Word, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter how you feel, no matter what your emotions are, God's Word will say, the God of the past has blotted out your sin, the God of the present makes all things for your good, and the God of the future will never leave you or forsake you. Amen? right exactly and that wasn't baptist uh, uh, tepidation that's actually you being honest about i want to be excited about this but sometimes i struggle we learn and we develop and we train and we study and we practice it's a process it's a relationship one puritan said we should note that our lord does not say if you abide in me not only if you abide in me, but adds, and my words abide in you. This means if my doctrine, my teaching abide fresh in your memories and is continually influencing your lives, our Lord God guards us against supposing that a mere indolent abiding in him with a dreamy, mystical kind of religion, his words must be burning like fire within us. And by the way, when you actually take the time to read God's word, not as a checklist, not to make yourself feel better, but because you want to know and worship God. Psalm 19 will not just be a psalm, it'll be your anthem. David, David the guy who cheated on his wife, murdered her husband, David the guy who constantly would get his eyes off of Christ and yet When he writes about God's Word and he writes about what it means to be in relationship, he says, the law of the Lord is perfect and it revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. <laughs> I think this is why John Newton said, though we are poor creatures, Jesus is a complete Savior. Savior. And we bring more honor to God by believing in his name and trusting in his word of promise than we could do by a thousand outward works. This is what it means to abide in Christ. Do you know that David finishes up Psalm 19 like this? Who can discern his errors? God, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do you see the subtle difference here? When David confesses, he's not bringing his laundry list of all of his junk. Because God doesn't need to be informed of it. He actually, even in confession, worships, Lord, help me help me to remember that even though i struggle i'm still declared innocent that's the difference between legalism and a weighty gospel and freedom and joy let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight O lord as i try harder no O lord my rock and my redeemer that's where freedom's found So let me ask you all again, are you at home with Jesus in his word, in prayer, in obeying, in loving? Be honest. How often do you read God's word? And I don't mean a checklist. I don't mean to convince yourself that God is happy now. But you read God's word because you are desperate to know God. And then to take that knowledge into your everyday life. Into starting school or university. Knowing that God loves you. Into dating or relationships or marriage or parenting or your job or money or illness, or setbacks, or knowing God's will, how often do we take these things and we make them weighty versus wonderful opportunities to discover how much God abides with you? How is your prayer life? Is it more of a grocery list? Even your confession, what is it like? Oh God, I did this, or oh God, I did this, or oh God, I'm such a bad person. Tell me what I need to do. Tell me the formula. Or is your prayer life fueled by God's word? Is it worshipful? How much do you and I spend reminding ourselves of God's love? I mean, we all know 1 John 1 9, right? If we confess our sins, what? He is what? Faithful and just to do what? Does that sound like you've got to convince him? Does that sound like you've got to be afraid or hesitant? Does that sound like you've got to make excuses or deflect or be defensive? Listen to David again in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's worshipful confession. That's not Ugly list confession. We have lost the art, not of prayer, not of Bible reading, not of small groups, not of doing church, not of trying to reach out. We have not lost the art of that. We have lost the power of worship and what it means to abide in Christ. Think about all the other things David said in Psalm 51, that the bones that you have broke would rejoice. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Blessed is the one, he said in Psalm 32, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is a guy who cheated on his wife and murdered her husband. And this was the kind of freedom he found. Because it was never in his resume. The reason why God said, David's a man after my own heart was not because he was a great king, but because as a human being, he knew he had a great savior. Don't try to impress each other with your resumes. Rather, point each other to Christ. And this is when you'll notice. Look at verse uh, 9 and 10. Abiding in Christ is the source of confident relational love. See, false Christianity is religion relationship fuels confident relational prayer and confident relational love. This is the one verse I could park myself here for weeks and preach this not only to you, but to me. My favorite verse, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, this past week, I gathered the guys into my office and I was reading parts of my sermon and I asked them, and I asked you, church, if I said to you, describe to me the love of Jesus for you, how would you do it? What words would you use? Go ahead. Yell them out. Peace. Huh? Peace. peace. Did I hear peace? All right. What else? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. Give me some other words. Merciful. Merciful. Another one? Unconditional. Huh? Unconditional. Unconditional. What about grace yes that a good word yeah all your words are great and awesome and they do describe the love of Jesus but that's not the love Jesus is talking about in John 15 9 as the father has loved me so have I loved you does God the father need to show God the son grace or mercy he's without sin How does God the Father love God the Son? He delights in His Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He provides for His Son. At the end of that, uh, at that temptation, the angels were sent by God the Father to minister to him. He glorifies his son. He communes with his son. He communicates with his son. So often you and I rightly think of the love of Jesus in terms of grace and mercy, which we need and are expressions of the love of Christ. But all too often that's where we stop. And we don't realize that God the Father delights in us, provides for us, glorifies in us, communes with us, communicates with us. I was with Chad and I were there when Mes McConnell preached in a conference we were at in Vancouver, and he was preaching out of Ephesians, and this just got, blew my mind. He talked about a, a game show in, in Scotland, which was similar to our version of um, Let's Make a Deal. And you know how you have the three curtains and you make a deal and you got to pick one, right? And often, hopefully, you pick the right one where the car or a trip or something is behind it. But often, you make a deal because you don't like it the first time there was a donkey or a goat, and and you think okay now i got uh, i got a 50/50 chance cuz i got two more things and then you pick one and if it's another and you go bump bump ba bom, bom, right and and they kind of open the gate and parade this booby prize before you and everybody has to see that you messed up and you screwed up and you didn't pick out and mess made the point that when god redeems his church And at the end of time, he is going to parade all of his bride before all of the angels and the myriads. And he was hypothesizing that Satan will be somewhere over there who had tried for millennia to destroy humanity. And God will parade his bride before him and go, look what you lost. That's you and me. This is the love of God. This is what Jesus is saying. Do you think the father is ever disappointed, impatient, frustrated, distant, needs to be convinced to respond or hear or comfort? No. This is why the John Newton, again, the great hymn writer said, are you not amazed sometimes that we should have so much as a hope that poor and needy as we are, the Lord thinks of us? And then he says... Our physician is almighty. Our disease cannot be desperate. So why should we fear? Our sins are many, but his mercies are more. Our sins are great, but his righteousness is greater. We are weak, but his power is m- above all. And most of our complaints, he says, are owning to our unbelief and the remainder of a legal spirit. It's because we're not abiding in Christ. Because when you abide in Christ, you will have relational love. Charles Simeon said to have a distinct experiential knowledge of Christ is to be able to say, he has loved me and given himself for me. And it's of more value than 10,000 worlds. It is that and that alone which can ever comfort and sanctify and save our soul. That's why John would write in 1 John chapter 4, see what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. So be warned here, church, because you might be going, Steve, this is awesome. But the moment we sing the last song and you hear the benediction, you're going to walk out there and you will instinctively and profoundly become self-centered. And you will start to doubt the love of of God. And you will start to think, I've got to earn it. I've got to impress. Hebrews says, therefore, we we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This is why we abide in Christ, because it's so easy for you and I to drift. It's the soft choice. It's the easy path. It's the small compromise. Very few of you are going to walk out here and just go, I'm going to just leave Jesus. You're going to leave here going, I want to walk with him. It won't be shocking. It won't be dramatic. You know what's worse and what's probably more problematic in our culture? It'll be a comfortable, unnoticed drifting away. I read the story of a man who joined a church but never attended worship services. But of course, he came to the church picnic because there was free food the pastor went up to him and said, I haven't seen you in church lately. And the guy said, that's true. I've learned that I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I can commune with God in my own way. I don't need to be a part of the worshiping community on Sunday or anything. That's all just legalism anyway. The pastor said, I understand what you're saying. They casually went over to the big barbecue to get a burger and While they were there talking, the pastor slowly used some tongs and took one of the charcoals and moved it over to the far side away from the rest while the hamburgers were sizzling. They continued to talk and all that, and then for a few minutes, the pastor said, My friend, look at that coal. A few minutes ago, it was radiant red in its heat and warmth. It was useful for grilling these burgers, but what has happened since I removed it from the fire and set it apart by itself? It's grown cool and has become worthless for the task it was created to do. So you don't come to church to earn God's favor. You come to church because we have God's favor, and it's where we come together To glow. You know what? Friends, the kids' songs really did get it right. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel. No, don't put it in the corner. Charles Spurgeon said, cease from self-confidence, from knowing yourself to be feebleness itself. Look above you to a nobler, sure source of strength in yourself. Abide in the love of Christ. And then finally, very quickly in verse 11, when we abide in Christ, it's the fountain of everlasting relational joy. Look at what he says. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Notice he didn't say happiness. He said, joy, his joy. You see, the world tries to make us believe that trusting in Jesus will actually rob us of joy. So doubting Jesus, disobedience, trying to make it on your own, and I tell you as someone who's tried it and has scars and regrets, never, and I mean never, have I doubted Jesus and it paid off for me. because when I've doubted Jesus, when I've lived for myself, when I've given in to what Hebrews calls the pleasure of sin for a time, then comes the guilt and the shame and the doubt and the why and the what now. And before you know it, you're crying out, oh, God, help me. Abide with me. But the truth is he always has been. So obedience from the love of God for me and you, trusting in Christ brings joy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, that in often evangelical churches, we use for that great giving kind of thing where often, and forgive pastors who try to guilt you ironically into giving out of a passage that says this, during a severe testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed into the wealth of your generosity. Their generosity wasn't mandated or peer pressured or culture-driven. Their generosity said, Jesus has given me everything. So what wouldn't I sacrifice for him? I'm already a winner. Jesus and Christ himself, the preacher of Hebrews said, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Do you want joy? Real joy? Wonderful joy? True joy? Then let Jesus come into your heart that's a kid song again that we've sung and who of us can possibly plumb the depths of the love that god the father has for god the son and the one whom the father called my beloved son so our lord jesus christ is saying to these disciples and to you and i i'm loving you the same way that my father loves me and so we started with abide with me and it is often the cry of us all when we get our eyes off jesus and we don't apply this passage But I want to end with the words of George W. Robinson. In his hymn, I am his and he is mine. Born in Ireland, he was a pastor for a very short time and he resigned because of illness. Little is known of the cause of his death or his illness... But we do know that he wrote this hymn one year before he died in which he had to give up his ministry and his livelihood and he became forever dependent on the generosity of others for the rest of his life. He said, loved with everlasting love, drawn by grace that love to know, spirit sent from Christ above, thou does witness it is so. Oh, this full and precious peace from his presence, all divine, in a love that cannot cease. I am his and he is mine. Taste the goodness of the Lord welcomed home to his embrace all his love as blood outpoured a seals the pardon of his grace and can i doubt his love for me when i trace that love's design by the cross of calvary i am his and he is mine his Forever, only his, who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving, living heart. Heaven and earth may fade away. Firstborn light in gloom decline. But while God and I shall be, I am his and he is mine. Are you at home with Jesus? Today. Today right now abiding with him you don't have to ask him to do that you don't have to plead with him you have to believe he abides with you what we need to do as people and as families and marriages and churches is stir each other on to love and good deeds to say we need to abide with him and you will have joy Unspeakable joy. Let's pray. Father God, if there was ever a sermon in over a quarter of a century of preaching that I beg of you, I beg of you, Lord, in your delight of me, help me to practice this sermon. In my life. Lord, more than half of my life, I have tried to impress you, to impress others. I all too often have measured my spirituality in terms of ticking boxes instead of delighting in you, resting in you, praying to you because you are an awesome God, giving my marriage to you and giving my children and my grandchildren to you, giving this church to you, giving this city to you and this country and province, Lord, giving the culture to you. Lord, you have never once asked me or us to save anyone. You have asked us to believe that you will save people. Lord, help me to believe how you have saved me and you will never leave me and you will never forsake me and you will do that for every man and woman here. And so if there are some and they've honestly searched their hearts and realize I have played church but never truly trusted in the love of God, Lord, may we move from, oh, God, abide with me. And joyfully exclaim, I am his and he is mine. And Lord, I even pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.